Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. This August day, I'm talking with Foz Meadows about her new fantasy novel, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. It's marketed as historical fantasy, but its subtle and humane sweetness set it aside for most examples of the genre. Though it offers political intrigues and battles, It is also a compassionate exploration of a man's recovery from assault and homophobia with the help of his new husband. The man in question, Velasin Vinaro, exhibits little purpose in life when we first meet him at his father's estate. The third son of a nobleman, he's an insecure dilettante who is forced to conduct his affairs with other men in secrecy due to the restrictive religious beliefs of his native country. When he's promised to a noble woman from the neighboring country of Tithena in order to cement a new alliance, Velasen feels like he has no choice but to go along with his father's wishes. However, when a former lover forces himself onto Velasen and the two men are discovered undressed, his preferences are revealed. Rather than dissolving the alliance, the envoy from Tithena suggests marriage to the prospective bride's brother instead to everyone's surprise. Vellison, shaken from the assault and forsaken by his father, takes his dear fr- uh, servant Markle and a few possessions and sets off to a country he barely knows, where his husband Cathari awaits him. From there on, the story alternates between the two perspectives. Cathari, a well-adjusted warrior with a good understanding of boundaries, is ready to welcome his new husband but someone else isn't and is trying to break up the impending union with covert attacks and attempted assassinations from various pawns. Even more disturbing, this conspiracy claims to be acting under the directive of the Wild Knife, which is Katheri's fighting name. 
Kathari and Vellison will need to work together as partners to survive and perhaps grow into their roles as husbands in the process. I'll just do a short reading to acquaint you with Foss's style. This begins where um, Vellison is meeting with his father and wondering if his father at last has found out his secret, uh, that being that Vellison is gay. Uh, so it's opening at uh, his father's estate. Sit down, Vell, said father, motioning to one of a pair of armchairs. I obeyed, careful to fold my hands in my lap, lest I grip the leather and give myself away through whitened knuckles. A redundant effort as the next words out of his mouth were, Relax, boy, I can see your tense, though the Lord's son alone knows why, or well, he amended, scrubbing a rueful hand through his beard. Perhaps that's unfair of me. After all, I can hardly blame you for wondering where you stand. If Revic, he broke off, and we shared a certain fond, pained expression at all that the absence entailed. I know, I said softly and left it at that. Well, said father after a moment, well then, he set his hands on his knees and met my gaze. Let me speak plainly. Though his majesty granted me Vin Mika's holdings on the condition that their inheritance falls, not to my eldest sons, but to Jerrion and to any other children, with which sign might yet bless me, he colored just a little and presumed remembrance of the efforts made in getting them, and I stared very hard at the opposite wall, the better to suppress an embarrassed laugh. Still, my elevation might benefit you. My sinecure, you mean? I asked, hardly daring to hope. Well, in a manner of speaking, yes, I mean for you to marry. At this, my lungs and brain forgot how breathing worked denying me that function for seconds that passed like minutes. My polaxed expression must have been an expected response, however, for father waited out my breathlessness with no apparent chagrin. How I finally managed and to whom? My sinecure cannot be increased so greatly as all that, surely? It isn't, came the blunt response. I don't propose that you could or should support a wife, though. In fact, I mean the opposite. You want a wife to support me? And why not? So uh, now I'm going to have Foz on the show and ask her some questions about the book. I've got Foz Meadows on the show now to talk about a strange and stubborn endurance. Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome, Foz. So I'm going to start off with the questions. Um, let's talk about Velasen first. When he begins to be treated with respect and no longer has to hide his sexuality, he becomes more confident and he proves to be a real asset to Kay, which is Kathari's nickname. Velasen's trusted valet, Markle, who is mute, also has hidden talents. Velasen and Markle turn out to be clever and brave, as well as being loyal friends. But in their former country of Ralia, neither of them were perceived as useful people. 
I feel like you're saying that when people are judged on the basis of one trait, whether it be their sexual preference or their ability to speak, the contributions they could be making go lost and it's a detriment to society as a whole. Is that how you see it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we you know, we live in a society that is a flawed society and, you know, it's, it can be fun in, in various things to try and, um, you know, in other books, I respect when authors try to explore uh, like utopias or what would a utopia look like. Uh, but I think the flaws of a society and always say something about it and where that society is sort of looking and, and in what direction. Um, Markle uh, is, Vel's servant who he this is explained in the book uh, sort of rescued from a very bad situation when they were really both children um, they speak in sign language as Michael is mute um, and Michael is perpetually ignored and underestimated and often considered to be stupid by those he encounters because he's you know certainly socially invisible in certain contexts because Velison is an aristocrat and Michael is uh, is a servant, but also because when his muteness is known, people therefore assume that he can't he can't think when he actually when obviously he can. He's extremely bright, and uh, there is reference to the fact that um, in Ralia, when Val and Michael have their life there and the capital sort of engaged in intrigues, part of the reason that Val is able to know as much as he does or be seen be perceived to know as much as he does is because People talk freely around Markel, thinking that he, even if he's, even if he can hear them, doesn't necessarily understand them, or can't report what he hears. When in fact, not only does uh, Markel speak sign language of Velison, he obviously understands Ralian, and the court language of secrets, which is also the language of the neighbouring country they end up in, Tiffany, um, he can speak that as well um, or understand it because when Vel learned it for his own purposes he taught it to Markle and learned it with him at the same time. Uh, and so this is a case of him being perpetually underestimated uh, and therefore an asset and a very valuable person. But if, if anyone else saw him the way Vellison does, it would, it, yes, there would be immense benefit from that. And the same with Vellison as well. I mean, he's yeah. basically yeah. a useless younger son. Uh, because he has to hide. He he can't be, he can't really reach his full potential because the society he has lived in devalues who he is at his core. Yes, and it's it's not just that the society uh, devalues it in the sense of knowing that that's Bell's secret. He has lived up until this, you know, the sort of the start of the book, he's lived his life uh, secretly. You know, he's got a few... Uh, friends of similar inclinations who know who, about that part of himself, but being forced to hide otherwise curtails the ways that he can live and act and necessitates a certain kind of secrecy. And we see this in, in the real world as well. And, you know, being closeted doesn't really serve anyone well. It, I mean, you can, you can say, yes, somebody's in the closet um, for reasons of self-advantage or self-protection um, because this is safest for them or best for them in terms of what they want from their career or their family or what, you know, even just keeping them legally safe in their society. 
uh, or in their particular social context. But mentally, emotionally, personally, it's not it's not a good place to be, and it does have a profound impact on a person's ability to uh, exist and thrive and be the best version of themselves. So uh, we're talking about Velison and his family position and sexuality, which has put him in a precarious position in Ralia, that he's not the only one who's suffering there. Uh, he's focused on his own woes, understandably. But he has a discussion with a stepmother, though, doesn't he, that opens his eyes to the plight of women in his homeland as well. Yes. So this is a slight spoiler in, the, in as much as it happens in Chapter 2. There's a trigger warning for it at the start of the book. Um, but the way in which Vel is revealed to be gay is that his former lover who cheated on him and who he broke up with has followed him home when he's summoned home at the start of the book to try and win him back. Um, things go wrong and the lover essentially assaults him. Um, and it's this act that is witnessed by members of the household and but due to the nature of what is being, what is occurring, it is not recognized as rape by the witnesses. They think this is a consensual encounter. And so this is how Vel is, is outed, um, which is obviously horrific for him on every possible level. Um, and he then is put in this position where he can't say that what has happened to him is assault because it doesn't, he's still, he's still a gay man. He's not going to deny that. Um, under, well, he can't, he doesn't feel he can deny it now because those to whom he is being called to account don't really draw this distinction. Uh, and then afterwards, before he is set out on his journey to, to Tiffana and Kefari and the rest of the book, um, he has a conversation wherein with his stepmother, Lady Sine, with whom he is just, she is sympathetic to him, more sympathetic than his father. And he accidentally lets slip to her that what has happened to him is, was assault. And she is sympathetic to this also, having been politically married to his father for, I don't need to go into the reasons why, but essentially the, the, way, the marriage, she chose it rather than a worse outcome but it was the marriage that was politically foisted on her. And this is, she says, she cannot rightly shame him for a fear she's known herself. Um, in term, when, when, when Bell talks about being now apprehensive to go and marry a man in, in Tithana. And this is sort of this, this moment where he realizes there is this solidarity between gay men and straight women, not that he uses those terms for it, of, oh, I never thought what it must be like. For all of these for all of these brides in my country who are married off, you know, obviously some get to choose their partners, but a great many don't. And I had never thought what it would be like for them to be in this position because I had never expected to be in that position because he has never viewed women as any kind of sexual threat. He's viewed the idea of being married to one as, as punitive and restrictive and something he personally wants to avoid, but that hasn't carried that element of if it happens, if I do have to get married against my will, uh, I would be safe. Whereas now he is getting married to a man, and suddenly that switches it around in his head and realizes, oh, this is, now I'm vulnerable in a way I didn't expect to be vulnerable. Yeah, he becomes even more apprehensive. He's already traumatized by the experience. I think probably most people who are um, looking into reading the book are familiar with the inciting incident. So, since already 
tense about that, about having someone he trusted treat him like that. And then there's this marriage to a man, too. But when it comes to Tithana, he finds out that marriages are very different there. And not just in the sense that same marriages are considered normal. How is the role of a spouse defined there? And how does finding out about the expectations there change, Vellison? So Tithana, which is the, the country across the border from, from Ralia, where he goes to marry the brother of the, the woman to whom he was originally engaged, uh, when, when the envoy discovers that his preferences lie with men, um, is, is a very different country. And yes, queer marriage is, is normative, it's legal there. And this changes things. It's, and I think it's less a question of what does Tiffana do differently than what does Ralia do specifically? Because all of Vellison's um, concept of marriage is bound up in heteronormativity and specifically in gender roles. So it's not so much what does a spouse do. He's used to the idea that in his particularly among the nobility, there is the husband who is, you know, the Lord or whatever, man of whatever rank. And these are his responsibilities in the household and sort of to society. Whereas the woman comes to the man's estate, she is a castellan effectively, she raises children, um, she has, has sort of social circles, she does these things. So when he comes to Tiffana and marries Kefari, he has this question of what is my role as your spouse? in an occupational sense, because I don't know. I don't know what it looks like when two men marry, because we're not bound by the gender roles that I have grown up assuming are inherent to the, to the concept of marriage. Um, and he's saying, you know, I don't, we can't, as far as I know, get children the usual way. Uh, we can't, we're living in what is functionally a sort of citadel rather than a house or estate. So I'm not, you don't need me to run this place. It's already being run. Um, and I don't know how to support you in your work. So what do I do? What does this marriage mean occupationally? And I think that that's a, a question that even in the modern world confuses, you know, people who are homophobic opposed to, to gay marriage is that they don't understand necessarily how completely their idea of, of marriage and partnership is bound up in heteronormative gender roles. So that when you take those away, they're like, well, then what does that even look like? What, how can that work? It seems to me the heteronormative gender roles are based on the assumption that one partner is dominant and one is submissive. One partner has the important role and the other one has the supportive role. Well, it is. And it's, this is the thing is that particularly, you know, in the modern world again, or, you know, historically, um, societies that end up in this sort of patriarchal um, system do try and say, oh, you know, women's roles are, are equally important because, you know, we need what they do and, you know, right, raising children is important and looking after the household is important. And it is. It is important. And yet, because it's a patriarchal and misogynistic system, even though those jobs are important, they are still functionally devalued because it is women who do them and women who are not valued. So it's sustaining the it's sustaining a necessity, basically, and saying it becomes like a sort of cyclic thing. Um, you know, we disdain women for doing women's work, and women women's work is sustained because it's women who do it, even though the system would not function without it. 
you have to disdain those two things to say, no, here is, here is what we deem important over here that men do. Therefore, men are important and men are important because as they, so they get to do important things. Yeah, it is. And you have cool. to keep that partition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting. I've seen lately other novels postulate same-sex marriages in a fantasy world as normal, and that's good to see. But you actually had some, like, practical aspects to it, too, that explained how that could work. For instance, how do people have children uh, if they're the same gender? And this is before IVF, of course. And uh, what are the various ways of handling this legally in Tathana? I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, so uh, the three sort of primary deities in Tithana, um, uh, Isla, Zoe, and Ruya, which is also the names they have for the, for the three, moons in, three moons in this world. And so for people wanting to have children who, for whatever reason, not, not even that they are a queer couple, just if you are a straight couple and you're having trouble having children for whatever reason, um, you have sort of two options. One is adoption, obviously, and the other is to use those sons or Isla's daughters, which are effectively... Um, yeah, basically magical IVF, uh, where you can you can engage. It is your option. You can engage with a person in the traditional way, and they can sire or carry a child for you, uh, or you can use magic to engage in that part of the process. And these are temple dedicates, so it's sort of a holy profession, and you know the temples will keep a record of genetically you know, who is who is the father or who is the mother or, you know, the parent of this child um, in case that information ever needs to be known. But because the, the, the temple party, you know, those son or Isla's daughter, because they come from the temple, the child that they produce is considered to be a blessing from the God and therefore goes home with the other parents. And there was also contract law if that option's not chosen. If I recall, uh, Kay's sister and her wife were looking at yeah, um, finding so, a noble. Yeah, so Kay's, uh, Kay's sister, Rhea, and, and her wife, uh, as sort of a sort of side detail in the book, um, are looking to have a child and they're seeking to negotiate what is called in the setting uh, known paternity, which means rather than going to uh, those sons to have somebody sire a child, uh, they're looking to contract with another nobleman to say, who will say, yes, we will sire this child. I will sire this child for you. Uh, again, this can be magically assisted, but I will be the biological side of this child. I will potentially be involved to in their, in their life. Uh, to some contractually negotiated extent, um, and that's more a more difficult option because you've got sort of three families then involved instead of two, and you have to have legal stipulations. Um, but this is the route that they've preferred to go, and so that's what they're negotiating for. Well, and that's just one of Kay's relatives. <laughs> He's grown up with uh, support and acceptance. So we could say his life has been easier than Val's. But Kay does have many relatives, and that complicates his situation. Tell us a little bit about them, the sisters and the grandma. 
Yeah, so Kisari lives in uh, the city of Kikatai in Tifana. Uh He lives in a place called the Aida, which is sort of a sort of citadel fortress thing at the top of the city. Uh, and it's held by his family, um, Clan Iberia, and has been for some time. Uh, and as a result, he lives with his family. So Rhea is his, held, is his elder sister. She lives elsewhere, but he's back currently negotiating for known paternity um, for this child. Uh, he has a younger sister called Lacia, who is the one that Velison was originally meant to marry. So she's very interested in what's now happening because this is her former, very briefly, even though she never met him during the time, fiancé now marrying her brother. Um, there's Kefari's father, who's in charge of the Citadel, in charge of the city, and he's sort of more a background figure. Um, but then there is uh, Yasser Kefari, who is of a rank basically equivalent to Duchess in, in Raleigh in the slash English terms, and who she is uh, Kay's grandmother. And without wanting to spoil things too much, she is staying uh, here because for political reasons that have to do with her inheritance and which of her grandchildren she wants to inherit that. And so obviously now that Kefari is married and he's married a, a marriage of alliance to someone from the country next door, this is of great interest to her. Yeah, so Kay's life is complicated in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> For the last question, uh, let's talk about the title of the book, because that relates to Val. His father said of him once that he had a strange and stubborn endurance, and in that instance, he hid from his brothers. And long after a game was over, he didn't come out of hiding, even though he realized that everyone had stopped looking for him. He was very cold when he was finally found. But uh, Kay also has his own take about Vel's stubbornness and what he sees as stubbornness. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Kizari really... He's very confused by Valison at first because um, he doesn't understand the, the context that he's coming from or the sort of recent trauma that he's had. But as those things become revealed, he falls for him quite quickly, really. Um, and he sees in his stubbornness um, a kind of courage and a kind of intelligence and determination that really appeals to him. And... You know, Vellison is also this character who really, I mean, the stubbornness, he has to be kind of be stubborn in order to persist in a world, in a culture which up until then now has not welcomed him. You have to have a certain kind of stubbornness to get through something like that. And he, yeah, he also doesn't have a very great self-preservation instinct in, in certain respects. Um but he doesn't recognize this about himself. He's sort of just used to being reckless and stubborn in that recklessness, just sort of doing what it seems to him to be the right thing to do or the thing that it has occurred to him to do without looking at how it's going to affect him or how it could particularly hurt him. And that might seem like paradoxical with the notion of somebody who has been forced to live in secrecy, but it, it's not. It just means that you're doing these things in a way where not everyone else necessarily doesn't know what you're doing, but you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it. Um, and so you have this 
you know, Velison endangering himself, and apart from Markle, um, he's not really used to having someone, especially not a not a sort of partner, not a husband, who is aware that he is recklessly endangering himself at times, and it hasn't. So Kefari is very frustrated by this. Uh, in the same, at the, while at the same moment being attracted to it, of why do you keep doing this? Stop, stop endangering yourself. Just sit still for a minute and, and let me look after you. And Ellison doesn't know how to be looked after, so he's mm-hmm. equally puzzled and compelled. <laughs> so the strange aspect of the endurance is just that it, it's somewhat odd or particular to Ellison that he's at the same time reckless, but he also has a core of inner strength. Yes, it's a sort of, I think, mercurial is the way I'd put it. It's a sort of in, into a mercurial endurance because he can be flexible. He's, he doesn't dig in with everything. But when he does, when his father says this to him, it's because he doesn't, you know, in referring to this childhood incident, um, the father doesn't understand why Vel has chosen this moment of all moments to dig his heels in <laughs> and, and make this point because there's no particular advantage to him to doing so. But in Vel's mind, it's just, I'm sick of having to pretend for sort of self-preservation reasons to be less intelligent than my brothers, to be less competent than my brothers. And I'm sick of having to make myself smaller and having to fit in in this role that I've been designated in order to survive. So just this once, I'm going to do the stupid thing and persist, even though I shouldn't. And, and, they, and the, his father doesn't understand why he's doing this. And so it's sort of this metaphor for the way he lives otherwise, where he's, he can be practical and he can be pragmatic and sensible and he can look after himself right up until he can't, at which point the need to reassert himself and, and be a person and say, I'm sick of doing this. I, I know what I should be doing, but I don't want to anymore. Right up until that moment, at which point um, interesting things happen. So it's an intermittent stubborn endurance, but that just wouldn't sound good in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it. So uh, what are you working on now? Anything we can look forward to close to press? Yeah, well, um, so a couple of things. So I'm actually at the moment writing the sequel to A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which I'm really excited about. Um, And that's, you know, more of what happens to Melissa and Kesari after the events of the first book. Um, I won't give any more spoilers. Um, I've also got a different sort of story on on the back burner, which is... Uh, I don't know. I, I keep sort of describing it to myself as a kind of reverse murder mystery, thinking that makes sense, but I can't really say <laughs> <laughs> why I'm describing it that way without spoilers that I haven't written yet. But um, in a set, basically, it's a very epic fantasy setting where people get magic from being touched by gods, and there's giant foxes to ride on, and all sorts of things, political shenanigans. Um, and then also uh, this month in June, um, I have a re-release of a previous novel that is uh, coming out again, uh, which is An Accident of Stars, which is a sort of queer uh, feminist portal fantasy and the first book in a completed duology. But the second book is also getting re-released at some point. Oh, okay. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, you, what's the best way for people to keep up with you? Should they uh, 
check out your website or follow you on Twitter? And... Yeah, so I, I I spend vastly too much time on social media. <laughs> uh, so I'm on Twitter at, at Foz Meadows, F-O-Z-M-E-A-D-O-W-S. Uh, that's also the Foz Meadows at WordPress, which is where I blog much more periodically now than previously. I mostly sit at the you know, do film reviews or book reviews or rant about things that are bugging me. Um, and yeah, it's just basically all social media forms. If I'm there, I'm there as Foz Meadows. Okay, well, thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks very much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to me today on A New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Foz Meadow about her queer fantasy romance, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. Next month, we'll feature Marion Deed's clever historical fantasy novella, Come Up and Served Cold. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. <laughs>